Good afternoon. Thank you and welcome to Teratech's second quarter 2017 financial results conference call. A replay of this call will be available at www.smallcapvoice.com and we, it will be archived on the investor relations section of the Teratech website. Before we begin, please let me remind you that during the course of this conference call, Teratech's management may make forward-looking statements. These forward-looking statements are based on current expectations that are subject to a number of risks and uncertainties that may cause actual results to differ materially from expectations. These risks are outlined in the risk factor section of our SEC filings. Any forward-looking statements should be considered in light of these factors. Please also note as a safe harbor, any outlook we present is as of today and management does not undertake any obligation to revise any forward-looking statements in the future. With me on the call today are Mr. Derek Peterson, Teratech's Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, and Mr. Mike James, Chief Financial Officer. With that, I will now like to hand over the call to Derek Peterson. Derek, please go ahead. Phil, thank you very much for organizing the call. Thank you for everybody, shareholders, interested shareholders on the call today to listen to uh, Teratech's 2017 second quarter results. As usual, today we also are going to provide an operational and business update as well. Today I have on the call with me Mike James, our CFO, who in a little bit will go on a little bit of a deeper dive into the financial results later on in the call. Just as a quick summary, um, this quarter we had uh, revenues of $7.8 million, but I want to put that into a little bit of context. Uh, we started talking, I want to say it was Q3 of last year, we were going to begin to migrate out of any lower margin business at the company to begin focusing on margin expansion, which is something that, uh, that's been at the forefront of our, our goals and objectives for some time right now. So we made that internal decision, as we discussed in Q3 and Q4, of migrating out of the flower business. And I'm not talking cannabis flowers. I'm talking about ornamental flowers. At first, as a lot of you original investors know, we had dealt with not only produce but ornamental flowers because we were concerned about certain retailers not continuing to do business on the produce front with us if we weren't also supplying them with flowers. We hit a point late last year where we felt comfortable enough about not losing a lot of those relationships, and we felt comfortable with migrating out of that flower business that the produce business would not only stay intact, but would continue to grow. So as of December 31st, we stopped doing business with the ornamental flowers on top of the produce. And last year, full year, I, I want to say it was about 4.5, 4.4 million in revenue we did on that side. So if we had continued to do that, business this year, again, we would have had a potentially an additional four-plus million dollars of revenue, but we migrated out of it. As we've seen, the margin expansion that we wanted out of the company going from 16% gross margins overall to 19% gross margins overall was a nice jump for us, but more importantly, the margin expansion out of Edible Garden went from 5% up to, or 6% up to 25%. Uh, in, in, in the same period for prior years. So that was a huge margin expansion on the edible garden side, which we actually blended with the cannabis margins going from 16 to 19%. We actually pulled back on the cannabis margins a little bit going into recreational sales to try to lower prices to scoop up as much market share going into recreational sales. We'll discuss that a little bit further on, but I wanted to make sure people understood that um, we basically decided not to engage in a certain business that would have potentially added four to five million in revenue to the top line coming into 2017. But we did that for the purposes of really focusing on margin expansion. On the cannabis side, as we said, we saw continued strengthening in demand for our cannabis products. Our total cannabis segment revenues were six million in the second quarter of 2017 compared with 3.8 million in the comparable period in the prior year. So very strong results on the cannabis side. And just remember, we had no adult-use recreational sales in Q2. 
everything was medical in both obviously California and Nevada, so we've had a tremendous uptick in the Nevada recreational sales obviously since July 1st. Uh, in addition to that, over the course of the quarter, we had uh, shareholder equity increased from 52 million to 68, just shy of 70 million dollars, and the company reduced debt by 5 million of principal. In the subsequent closing of the quarter, on the subsequent events, if you read into the further into the footnotes, you'll see that we reduced uh, an additional 1.5 million of debt post-closing of the quarter. Um, jumping into some of the market segments around the country, I'll start off in Nevada. As I said, we went recreational sales July 1, 2017. Revenues for the first month out of Nevada uh, were $2.2 million. Uh, Reno made up 50% of that. Uh, the rest was equally split between our Desert Inn, our Decatur Boulevard, and our Western Ave location. So we're thrilled at the uh, kind of the hockey stick sales ramp we've experienced as of July 1st. It was a lot more than we thought it was going to be out of the gate, but we're very pleased with the financial performance coming out of Nevada just in the first month. And we are hoping to see a similar trend as uh, time goes on and, you know, kind of a similar kind of appreciation that uh, Colorado and some of the other markets had in terms of organic growth over the coming 12 and 18 months. And, that, and, and to put that into context, too, please remember that we don't have our, our cultivation facilities up and running just yet, so we don't have our wholesale brand in the market there. So the, the sales figure that we just rattled off, the $2.2 million for the month of July, doesn't include what the market potentially could be as we start to begin to wholesale our products, our IVXX products throughout the Nevada marketplace. So a whole other opportunity to monetize the state in the, in the, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, let's jump over to Oakland. Uh, some of you know, some of you don't know, we started making some major uh, cosmetic changes to our Oakland facility to better match the Bloom brand that we've developed in the Nevada marketplace. Uh, construction on the remodeling is about 75% complete. For those of you who have actually um, gone to the facility, take some time, stop back by again. I think you'll be really pleased with how things look there. It really has kind of, like I said, that bloom look and feel that we established in, uh, in the Nevada marketplace to, again, further that continuity and brand integration that we've been working so hard to complete. Uh, full remodel should be done probably by the end of Q3 2017, and uh, we're excited to showcase the new brand and the new footprint up in our Oakland marketplace. Uh, to all the consumers there. In addition, San Leandro, which again is a place about 40 minutes south of Oakland, in between Oakland and San Jose, we wanted a permit uh, for a, uh, a dispensary location as well as an extraction lab in that marketplace. We expect to complete construction of the, the, that facility by the end of third quarter of 2017. Then depending on permitting, which is always you know, kind of a, a, a complicated task after we finish construction, we anticipate probably being open by fourth quarter, sometime in fourth quarter of 2017. We're excited about that marketplace, as we've said before, for a couple different reasons. Uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a vacuum in between San Jose and Oakland in terms of medical cannabis dispensaries and now soon to be recreational adult use cannabis dispensaries. So if anybody lived in the middle ground, San Leandro being one of those locations, they generally either had to drive down to San Jose or drive up to the Oakland marketplace to purchase their cannabis. And now they're going to have something that has amazing freeway access that's right next to a great outdoor mall area. We're really excited about, again, pushing the Bloom brand and that new demographic, and we're excited about the potential sales that are going to be coming out of that marketplace coming into 2018. We announced uh, not too long ago that we did a partnership with a Northern California craft cultivator. Again, we signed our first craft cultivator up in Northern California, up in Honeydew, Southern Humboldt County. It's kind of known as the Emerald Triangle. Many of you have heard that term before. 
The farm, which is approved for up to one full acre, which is about 44,000 square feet of cannabis cultivation, uses 22,000 square feet of engineered greenhouse space. And again, if you refer back to the prior press release, we estimated the yield to be approximately one metric ton of product coming out of there for our proprietary high-grade IVEX cannabis brands. And we're really excited about that partnership. We're really excited about working with a lot of these craft providers in California, people who have been doing this for 10, 15, 20 years who focus on a handful of strains of us bringing them under the TerraTech umbrella and controlling these brands, handing the administration, handing the mar- handling the marketing, and allowing that craft cultivator to do what they're really, really good at doing, which is producing a product that's premium to most of the other products in the marketplace. And we're going to continue to hopefully do more of those partnerships throughout California as the new regulations come into effect. Real quick on the Edible Garden side of things, we've developed a new marketing campaign for Edible Garden. We've secured a few feature slots. Uh, For those that haven't seen our television commercial yet, we're focusing on the nutritionally enhanced super leaf salad on a television show. The first rollout is plant-based by Nafiska on July 26th. It'll be on the A&E channel. We're going to continue to roll out that marketing campaign as we continue to use that super leaf product as our premium product that's different from everybody else's that allows us to enter the market without having any measure of competition. For some of the new shareholders that are on the call, the Superleaf product is essentially a strain, to use some cannabis terms, of red leaf and green leaf lettuce, and there'll be more products coming on the backbone, a partnership that we did with Rutgers University. It's actually a patented breeding process where we can put a particular product like red leaf or green leaf lettuce into the marketplace and have something that's nutritionally enhanced in comparison to our peers, higher nutritional value, higher level of antioxidants for the same price as what they would be buying a competitor's red leaf and green leaf lettuce. And as the consumers, through the dissemination of information and social media and those types of things, become more and more educated about where I'm spending my dollar and what am I actually getting for that dollar that I spend, they know with Superleaf, if they spend a dollar, they're getting a nutrition density and an antioxidant density that's far greater than what they would be spending with our peers. So that's the differentiating product we're using, why we're focusing it on the television commercials, and our objectives continue to push that out in multiple markets throughout the United States. Corporate Governance uh, Board of Directors update. Not too long ago, uh, Mike Van Vreed, Steve Van Vreed, and Amy Almster stepped down from the board. I wanted to make sure everybody understood the reasoning and mentality behind that. You know, as I've said since day one, and said, our team said since day one, we've always had uplisting to an exchange at some point in the future uh, as one of our top strategic priorities. Now, federal hurdles, et cetera, and so forth, we're not certain exactly when that's going to happen, but we're really restructuring the company and positioning ourselves to have our best internal practices at the forefront going into that opportunity. So if that's 12 months or 24 months down the line, we want to make sure that they look back at us and we appear as though we've had strong corporate governance, not just a month prior or two months prior, but for years prior, where we've had shareholders' interests aligned with management interests. So they stepped down in order to create an opportunity and some room on the board for bringing in other strategic independent board members over time. We're going to put a lot of thought and energy to who we bring in because we don't just want any standard board member. We want a board member that also provides strategic help to us in certain capacities. So we're hoping over the next you know, handful of months we can really sit down and start looking at potential candidates to broaden out and enhance our independent oversight and obviously incorporate best practices into corporate governance. In addition, and to complement that, we formed an advisory board. And if you look at the press release that came out just, uh, just a bit ago, we first appointment was a gentleman named Alan Gladstone being the first member of our board to provide strategic guidance to management. 
So Mr. Gladstone's got decades of entrepreneurial and executive level, level experience, and as you know if you've read the press release, he was the founder, chairman, and CEO of Anna's Linens, which was a specialty retailer of home textiles and home decor items from about 1987 to 2015. He actually grew that business to 305 stores operating in 23 states to over $400 million in annual revenue. And as most of you know, we're putting a tremendous amount of emphasis on building this Bloom brand out. It's becoming a national brand where people know whether they pop into our Nevada location, our Northern California location, or wherever we happen to pop a store up, they're going to get the same level of customer experience and the access to the same high-quality products day in, day out, month in, month out. It's, 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 again, I've said this several times before, continuity among retail experience is something that's expected with almost every other retailer on the planet. But in the cannabis industry, it isn't something that's been developed because of the fragmentation. We're really putting a tremendous amount of emphasis on developing that measure of transparency, continuity, and consistency from a retail branding experience. And I think a gentleman like Alan's going to go to huge lengths to put us above the competition. And that's one of the reasons, again, we formed the advisory board on top of making those strategic decisions to make room on the general board of directors as well. Um, in addition, uh, if some of you may have seen this, some of you may not. We didn't put out a press release, but there was an associated AK with this event, excuse me, on July 27th, uh, following a board meeting the previous day. The AK essentially that we put out was an adjustment on the conversion rate of the company's Series B preferred stock in the event of a reverse stock split. So the B shares of the company, the preferred B shares, originally the certificate of designation allowed them not to be reversed if the company did some semblance of a reverse split. And that would have had a dilutive effect to our common shareholders. The B shareholders got together, adjusted the certificate of designation, and we put ourselves at the same plane as the common shareholders. So if there's ever a reverse split that's needed for a merger, an acquisition, uh, an uplisting, or some major event like that, the B shareholders will be reversed at the same rate as the common shareholders, and there'll be no additional dilutive effect to the common shareholders. And that was something that we thought was very important to align, again, our interest with that of the common stockholders. A little bit of a regulatory update. Um, Nevada, as most of you know, went live fast-tracking their adult-use recreational sales on July 1st. Sales have been trending up since then. Again, we did $2.2 million in sales out of our four locations in the month of July. Uh, state and local governments have been great. They've been working with us to find out what works well in the regulatory process, what's uh, cumbersome in the regulatory process, and uh, the industry associations and groups that we've put together have suggested changes to the laws and the regulations. And so far, Nevada being, you know, an area that does a great job regulating in a large history in highly regulated industries has been very adaptive to the concerns and issues for us from an operating standpoint. So we're very pleased with that strategic move and the investment that we made early on in the Nevada marketplace, and it's proven to us now, as July 1st came around, that it was, a great, it was a great strategic move for us to invest in the state, and we're happy with the progress that we've made just out of the gate in the month of July. Um, California, as many of you know, last November passed recreational use, and that will be going into effect January of 2018. Uh, the market size, depending on who you talk to, I've heard anywhere from 7 to $10 billion annually. What I do know is the sixth largest economy in the world and it is obviously the largest cannabis market in the country. We're very well penetrated here with our fully integrated facility in Oakland, as well as our facilities that we're opening up in the San Leandro marketplace. And as I said to you before, we have a heavy emphasis on merger and acquisition and consolidation in the California marketplace on a go-forward basis. And a big part of that is because I think the recreational sales, even though California is somewhat quasi-recreational right now, 
should be a nice increase to the market size here in California. And part of that will be just because the barriers to entry to purchase cannabis will be severely reduced in combination with the 250 million plus annual visitors that California gets to come out and see anything from Disneyland to our beautiful beaches. So we've got a huge opportunity ahead of us in the California marketplace, and we're really excited about the penetration we're coming to market with right now. At this time, I wanted Mike James, to uh, Terratech's Chief Financial Officer, to to start a deeper dive here and uh, dig into the uh, numbers a little bit more thoroughly. Thank you, Derek, and good afternoon, everyone. I will now provide you with a summary of our second quarter 2017 results. For the more detailed results, please refer to the press release we issued earlier today, which is posted on our website, along with the Form 10-Q filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. In addition, please note that we compile our financials under U.S. GAAP, including our non-operating expenses. For the three months ended June 30, 2017, we generated revenues of $7.84 million compared with $9.7 million for the three months ended June 30, 2016, a decrease of $1.86 million or 19.1%. The decrease was primarily due to the expiration of an edible garden contract for floral product that expired at December 31, 2016. The floral revenues were $4.4 million for the three months ended June 30, 2016 versus zero for the three months ended June 30, 2017. The decrease was partially offset by increased revenue generated by the Black Oak Gallery, Medifarm, and Medifarm One dispensaries, IVEX from the sale of its cannabis products, and Edible Garden from the sale of its herbs and product, produce products. Our gross profit for the three months ended June 30, 2017 was $1.51 million, compared to a gross margin of $1.55 million for the three months ended June 30, 2016, a decrease of 41000 or 2.6%. A gross margin percentage for the three months ended June 30, 2017 was 19.2% compared to 15.9% for the three months ended June 30, 2016. The increase in gross margin percentage was attributable, attributable to the Edible Gardens Herbs and Produce segment, which had 451,000 and 356,000 gross profit for the three months ended June 30, 2017 and 2016, respectively, or 25.4% and 6.1% gross margin percentage for the three months ended June 30, 2017 and 16, respectively. The herbs and produce segment gross margin percentage increase was related to the expiration of the floral product contract. This was particularly offset, partially offset by the cannabis segment, which had $1.04 million and $1.17 million gross profit for the three months ended June 30, 2017 and 2016, respectively, or 17.2% and 31.1% gross margin percentage for the three months ended June 30, 2017 and 16, respectively. Selling and general and administrative expenses for the three months ended June 30, 2017 were $6.03 million compared to $5.36 million for the three months ended June 30, 2016, an increase of $665,000 or 12.4%. The increase was primarily due to an increase in salaries and wages, payroll taxes, health care benefits, and the issuance of stock for the staff hired at the Black Coat Gallery, Medifarm, and Medifarm One dispensaries as well as an increase in accounting and compliance personnel associated with the implementation of accounting systems and processes at the Black Oak Gallery, Medifarm, and Medifarm One dispensaries. 
we realized a net loss of approximately 454000 or zero cents per share for the three months ended June 30, 2017, compared to a net loss of $4.93 million or one cent for the three months ended June 30, 2016. The primary reason for the decrease was a decrease in revenue, an increase in SG&A, and an increase in the gain on settlement of contingent consideration liability during the three months ended June 30, 2017, compared to the prior year period. Now turning to the balance sheet, on June 30, 2017, we had a cash balance of approximately $9.1 million compared to a cash balance of approximately $9.7 million at December 31, 2016. Short-term debt as of June 30, 2017 amounted to approximately 576000 compared to approximately 564000 as of December 31, 2016. Long-term debt decreased from approximately $1.4 million to approximately 736000 during the first six months of 2017. Stockholders' equity for the second quarter of 2017 amounted to approximately $68.2 million compared to $52.1 million as of December 31, 2016. Now I'd like to turn the call back over to Derek for some closing comments. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. So just in summary, um, we're going to spend a few minutes after this to go over some Q&A. But uh, in summary, Nevada went adult use legal July 1st. We captured approximately $2.2 million in revenue over that period of time. Uh, we continue to see significant traffic, traffic as well through our Bloom locations across the state, as well as our Bloom Oakland, which again is going through a cosmetic restructuring. But in addition to that cosmetic restructuring, a lot of you know that we kind of began, we ended an old consulting contract we had with prior operators. Um, SALWA is taking the campus back over, and we're going through a major operational restructuring up there as well. And that operational restructuring is focusing on increasing sales, reducing cost of goods, increasing margins. So I'm really excited about the progress that we're going to be showing out of there in the upcoming quarters as well, obviously in combination with the financial performance that we'll be seeing out of the uh, Nevada marketplace. Both of those hitting in concert should be extremely accretive and productive for us. Both the cannabis and the produce segment revenues are continuing to increase. We continue to see improved gross margins with the exit of our floral business, as we spoke about a little bit earlier. And we're expecting completed construction on the cultivation facilities in Oakland and San Leandro dispensaries, um, both you know, hopefully operating at full speed coming into Q4 of 2017. We continue to improve upon our corporate governance, as we had mentioned before, as we start restructuring our board of directors, as well as continuing to stock the advisory board. And again, with the conversion of the B shares and the reversibility of those, we, we align management's preferred B shares with those of the common shareholders. We're really excited about Q3 coming into the marketplace there, again, with the restructuring that's always heading up at the Oakland marketplace in combination with the, the cash flow that's now coming out of, of uh, the Nevada marketplace. This these two efforts in, in themselves are, are working very heavily to significantly reduce our burn and start pushing the company over to cash flow break-even. We'll, we haven't put a date on when we're trying to achieve that, but we're hoping management can put together a plan and we can start communicating with shareholders a period of time of which we think will be to cash flow break-even. So keep an eye on that. We're also reaffirming the 38 to $40 million in revenue for this year. We're not going to make any adjustments out of that right now. We just don't know what Nevada's trend is going to look like. One month is certainly not enough to dictate upside or downside any potential impact that that's going to have. So we want to make sure we're you know, having a conservative and responsible approach at this point. Right now, I'd like to turn the call back over to Phil to open it up for questions and answers. Sure. Uh, Derek, the first question we have, can you please explain the current state and projected outlook for the IVEX brand? 
Um, yeah, so uh, Ibex, we're obviously in a you know, few, couple hundred retailers in the state of California. We're continuing to broaden out our marketing uh, there as well. We're continuing to broaden out our product um, offerings is there as well. Um, one of the other things that uh, Saul was focusing up at the Oakland campus is the redevelopment of our packaging and those types of things to make sure we're competitive coming into the changing regulatory environment into California. Again, we're going to have a kind of a mixed environment here. We're going to have part medical and obviously part adult use, and we want to make sure our packaging and our marketing is aligned with those two efforts. So we're, uh, we're, we're putting a tremendous amount of focus on that and as well as the Nevada marketplace. I'd like to just let everybody know we have an, an announcement coming up that will kind of answer a lot of questions around IVEX penetration in Nevada, specifically uh, cultivation, and uh, we hope to be able to put that out in the next couple weeks. So keep an eye out for that as well. Um, you know, maybe potentially this week, but it could push into next week, and that will answer a lot of questions about not only the, uh, the, the, the cultivation aspects for the company in the Nevada marketplace, but obviously the brand development and the uh, brand integration of IVEX in Nevada as well. One question, fillers. That was too easy. Oh, we might have lost Phil. So let's hang on just a minute for him because I know we probably had a handful of shareholders' questions. See if he can get back to us in just a second, everybody. The next question, are the rumors about an impending reverse split true? Uh, no. I mean, we put it on the proxy, if, if for those of you that read the proxy. So when we put the reverse split language in the proxy, it's just to give that flexibility to management over the course of a year where we, where we have the ability to reverse split the company if something happens. So as I've said to everybody before, and i said this several times, um, you know, I, I come from Wall Street. There's no reason why I would do a reverse split into a vacuum for no reason. So if we had an M&A, if we had a big financing or something where somebody dictated that it made more sense, for us to do that, and obviously for a potential uplisting, there would be a, have to be a, a significant catalyst involved to do something like that. But again, for those of you who know, I mean, it, it, a reverse split has no economic impact, especially now that we've realigned the B shares, so it doesn't cause any concern for shareholders. So if we do a reverse split for any of those events in the upcoming future, you know, if you had 10 shares uh, at, at a buck and you end up with one share at 10 bucks, you know, you're still economically in the same situation. So. Um, we're not as worried about the migration back down, but we would be, you know, worried about the migration back down if we just happen to conduct a reverse split, you know, because it's Tuesday. So we have no, we have no uh, desire to do that, like I said, into a vacuum. It would only be if there was a significant catalyst that we thought uh, it made great strategic sense to be able to do that at the same time. Okay, the next question, what requirements remain in order to uplist to another exchange? When can we expect this to happen? You know, a lot of that, I think that's just going to be driven by the federal banking regulation. I think a lot of that's going to be driven by, you know, the federal appetite to, to take a look at what's going on in our industry and some softening. Um, so as of right now, I mean, the, I, I don't think the exchanges are ready to have companies, especially like ours, that are touching the plant just yet, which is, again, why we're spending all of our time, effort, and energy on acting like an exchange company for all practical purposes. We're working towards an independent board. Uh, we uplisted to the QX. You know, we put together the corporate governance aspects uh, with things. Um, so we're doing everything that we can do to get ourselves in shape for that. And for all practical purposes, we meet almost every requirement with the exception of the price per share. I believe that's the only requirement at this point we don't make. So in theory, we could reverse split and then, you know, apply. But we're, you know, we're, we're violating federal laws, we all know. So there's going to be, I think, a learning curve that everybody's going to have to go through before the appetite begins there. But when and if they do allow, and I think it's when, not if, um, we're certainly, I think, very well positioned to be one of the first 
um, to end up on an exchange somewhere. But that's obviously a core focus of ours. But in between now and then, we're building our business on the OTCQX, and we're continuing to conduct our, our growth there, and uh, it's been a good environment for us. Uh, next question, what is the latest on Jeff Sessions' effort to crack down on the cannabis industry? You know, a, a lot of this is just going to be my opinion, but, you know, and, and everybody's read, you know, I, I would imagine all the different stories that exist out, out there. I think, you know, I think when, when, when Jeff Sessions came into office, I think that he began, you know, in short order after a handful of comments to understand, he understood the size and scope of the industry, um, perhaps, you know, just because some of the repercussions of some of the commentary that he made and the pushback that came from, you know, bipartisan support in Congress, from senators, from other political leaders, from state governors, from entrepreneurs to, um, um, a, you know, different industry associations and those types of things, from the DPA. Um, so there was a tremendous amount of pushback, I think, to some of the verbiage that he came out with early on, and I think he's now beginning to understand how embedded this industry is, number one, and number two, the economics that surround it. So he recently sent out some letters to Washington and Oregon that, that you know, asked them to qualify and quantify what's going on with the regular regulation there and maybe take a harder look at, you know, out-of-state diversion and access for minors and those types of things. But the last comment on the letter that he said, for those of you who haven't read it, Google it, check it out, uh, and I'll, I'll butcher this to a certain degree, but it was something to the effect of we are willing to open up a dialogue and making sure that, you know, we can help, you know, kind of co-develop the rules and regulations as we, you know, look at how to balance what's going on in your states with federal regulations. So I think that, I think the tempo's changed a little bit. And, and again, from my perch, um, that being said, um, you know, every day that goes by, we see more and more discussion at a congressional level, level, whether it was, you know, or legislative level, whether it was Cory Booker's federal legalization bill, the veterans bill, the banking bills. There's a tremendous amount of conversation that's taking place right now. Uh, in Washington around this particular subject, and we're getting more and more people associated with this industry. Uh, and, you know, I, it almost seems like on a monthly basis. And I think a lot of that has to do with the polling that comes out. If you read the polling that comes out, it's well over half the country is in support of this. So I think, again, I've said this, I've said this a year ago, that it's becoming very politically unfashionable not to support states' rights. Whether you care about cannabis or don't care about cannabis, states' rights is becoming a very, very hot button. And Cannabis, obviously, is becoming a very hot button as well. So we're picking up a lot of Republican support just around the state's rights issues, but we're picking up more and more bipartisan supports on cannabis as people begin to learn more about the industry, the professional people that are involved in the industry and that type of thing. How has the environment for raising capital changed? Has it improved? You know, going into last year before the election, it was starting to improve. The access to capital was increasing, and I think after – you know, after the administration change and some of the aggressive language and, and, and um, content that had come out of the administration, things tightened up for a little bit for a period of time, but I think that was just kind of a slow impact. So, you know, what we see now is there's a tremendous amount of cannabis companies that have a requirement for capital, and there's more and more capital coming into the marketplace. Some of it's still very expensive. Some of it's starting to become a little bit more affordable, but it's nowhere near, you know, the levels of what the capital affordability and the capital access is for, you know, companies that exist on the NASDAQ or the NYC in traditional business, and hopefully we get there someday, but it's good and it's healthy, and for us right now, it's certainly enough to, for us to be able to raise the chunks that we need to raise to continue to execute on our business model, and uh, all of our financings, you know, have gotten cheaper and over time in terms of discounts and, and those types of things to avoid some measure of toxicity. 
Um, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm surprised at how healthy it is in comparison to just 24 months ago. But again, there's a long way to go. So if you look at markets like Canada that have federal legalization and the fully bought deals that are taking place and the over subscriptions and the app market deals and those types of things, we're nowhere near that yet. But it tells you, you know, kind of gives you a little bit of an indication of what things may look like down the line with the market cap multiple expansions as well as the access to capital. So we're excited about what the future brings as far as that perspective. And in between now and then, again, we've got access to capital that we feel is affordable, not super dilutive, and gives us the ability to execute on our business and growth model. This is a two-part question. Uh, How have recreational sales in Nevada uh, trended lately after the initial week of strong sales. What have you learned from the customer, and have you experienced any inventory slash distribution disruptions? Yeah, so as we said, we saw 2.2 million just out of our retail facilities in, in the month of July, which we were very surprised it was that significant out of the gate. I mean, I, I really got to tell you, I underestimated the overnight impact that adult use uh, recreational sales would have in the Nevada marketplace, and I'm thrilled with that. And many of you have seen some reports that were some issues with distribution inventory levels because of the alcohols industry's kind of a quasi-monopoly that they had built into the legislation. Uh, long story short, the governor passed emergency regulations, and there was a workout. So everything's fine today. There's plenty of distribution in the marketplace. There's plenty of cultivation in the marketplace, plenty of access to product in the marketplace. Um, my management team in Nevada was smart enough to build up inventory significantly prior to the implementation of this, so we never had any type of a, a, a sales glut, you know, because of uh, a low inventories or no access to products. So we built up some significant reserves, and those reserves last us until the emergency regulations and the changes were put in allowing for more distribution in the Nevada marketplace. So as we sit today, no problem with access to product, no product fulfilling at the uh, sales on the retail level. Uh, what sets Bloom apart from your competitors, and does that resonate with your customers and loyalty to your brand? You know, I think so much of it is, is like I said, that continuity and consistency you have, whether you stop in a Reno location somewhere down, you know, in downtown Vegas or, you know, you pop up into Reno and soon to be in San Leandro. It's that measure of consistency, and I've said this before. I mean, it's, it, right now it's the only industry that I know of where you could walk in and order OG Kush at some dispensary in San Diego, roll into another dispensary a few weeks later and buy OG Kush and have a very high probability of getting a different product. That's not acceptable in any retail environment that exists that I'm aware of. Um, that being said, we're working hard to bring that measure of consistency and continuity to a retail brand, and I think that's been one of the reasons we've had the success that we've had and, and developed, you know, like I said, the infrastructure that we've been able to develop is because of not only the look and the feel and the fact that when you walk in, it's got the same tile and light fixtures and paint colors and flooring, and you know when you're in a bloom, but you have that same measure of product consistency coupled with excellent customer service and product knowledge. So our bud tenders and the people that work our counters we don't just throw anybody up there. We put people through significant amount of training and education around all the different strains, the efficacy of those strains, how those strains apply on a medical front, how people may use those strains from a recreational standpoint, um, and those types of things. So especially in new marketplaces like Nevada where you have people coming in not only from all over the country but all over the planet, 
um, there to you know take a you know few days to relax and recreate. It's a there's, there's a big education curve. You don't have that as much say up in the Bay Area where it's been legalized for 20 years, but in some of these new marketplaces you do. And so what really sets us aside? Forget the continuity, the consistency, the integrity of the product, and the look and feel of the facility is really that customer service experience across all locations. Okay. Uh- what is the new expectation for annual sales this year compared to the 38 to 40 million issued on the Q1 call? Yeah, we're going to we're going to keep that affirmation today and listen, if we can pleasantly surprise, I'm thrilled we were able to do that last year by a decent margin and you know, hopefully we were able to do that this year, but Again, you know, Nevada just kicked on. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure things will plateau out a little bit and it will, you know, slow stair step up like some of the other marketplaces like Colorado did. We just don't have enough data to make an educated forecast and make any major adjustment. Not that it would be of any consequence um, to anybody. So we'd like to see how things trend. You know, if, if the end of Q3 we want to make some slight, you know, change, we may do that. But the reality is, is you know, again, we hope to be conservative on this front. We hope to be able to beat like we did last year. And again, we just don't have enough access to data at this point to make an educated adjustment to that. So as we sit right now, 38 to 40 million is the revenue increase on the backbone of doing about 25 million last year. So we're thrilled with that for a year-over-year increase. And in in, you know what I would consider a very challenging uh, environment. We're not like any other business. You know, we're not making you know tech products. We're not making software. We're making a federally legal product in a very dynamic, fast-paced, and aggressive and competitive marketplace. So, in that environment, I'm thrilled at the growth just from last year that we'll experience in 2017, and then obviously, hopefully, going into 2018 with all the cultivation projects coming online, the expansion of IVEX by you know with with the backing of those cultivation footprints. We're really excited about the potential growth into that uh, in that year as well. Okay, and last question here. Do you expect margins to continue to expand? What percentage can shareholders reasonably expect? Uh, I don't want to put any exact figures, but let, just understand this. Margin expansion, gross margin is, a, I would say, in our top three. So obviously top-line revenue growth, grabbing market share, but also when we bring these facilities under, we, we open them up organically as we have a strict emphasis on extracting as much cash flow. We don't want to continue to burn as a company, which is one of the reasons, let's say, on the edible garden side, we decided not to continue to raise capital and build out our own greenhouse footprint across the country. We decided to partner with existing greenhouse operators so we didn't have the dilution in the CapEx. Again, we're aligned with the common shareholders. When the stock goes up, I'm thrilled. When the stock goes down, I feel the same way that all of you feel. You know, we make a little bit of cash compensation, but all of our insiders uh, own a significant amount of the company. We have a significant amount of equity risk. So we put a tremendous amount of emphasis on gross margin expansion so that we can kick off cash flow and drive that cash flow to the bottom line. Because what that really means is, is we can use that cash flow to continue to invest into new markets rather than having to issue shares. Um, and, and do that type of thing. So even if, even if we still have to issue shares to raise capital to enter new markets, if we can kick off significant cash flows from our multiple retail locations and our wholesale brands, that's just going to mitigate and reduce the amount of money we have to raise in the open marketplace. So that's, the, you know, again, one of our top three primary objectives is that, along with, like I said, top-line revenue growth, and we hope to be able to, on a consistent basis, show an improvement in gross margins across the board. Any other questions, Bill? That is it. Okay. Well, again, we always have a few hundred people on these calls that take their time to listen to me blabber. So 
I do appreciate that on behalf of uh, our officers of the company, every single one of our employees of the company, which I think we have 225 of them now, and uh, the board of directors, our audit team. Thank you very much for the support that we've had over the last few years to those shareholders. Many of you have been with us since 2012. We appreciate that. And uh, we hope to continue to update people uh, over the next several weeks on some strategic moves we're making in some of the marketplaces we're doing business right now. But mostly we're really excited about coming on and doing this call after Q3, and we have a, a great opportunity to look at uh, the fruits of our labors in the Nevada marketplace. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to us today. We look forward to chat soon.